This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Welcome to Policy on Purpose. My name is Angela Evans, and I have the privilege of being the dean of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs here at the University of Texas at Austin. My special guest today is the Honorable Julian Castro. Mr. Castro started his political career in his hometown of San Antonio, just down the road from Austin, as a councilman and then a mayor. He was then appointed by then-President Barack Obama as Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Today, we're so fortunate to call Mr. Castro one of our own. He has, since the fall, served as the Dean's Distinguished Fellow and the Fellow of the Davila Chair in International Trade Policy right here at the LBJ School. He's been a tremendous asset to the school and to the students. He's been generous in his time and his sharing of his knowledge and expertise. This week, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Lyndon Baines Johnson's signing of the Fair Housing Act, which prohibited discrimination concerning the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, or gender. We have right here uh, a ready-made expert. As a former HUD secretary, Mr. Castro knows as well as anyone some of the most pertinent challenges we're facing in America today. So we're fortunate to have him here to talk with us today about his experience, not only at HUD, but also as mayor of San Antonio, where housing obviously was one of the more important issues that he faced as mayor. So welcome, Julian. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So first, let's talk through your career a little bit. Your career took you from councilman to mayor to then HUD. When you think about their trajectory and if you think about the threat of housing, talk about housing really, how housing was an anchor for you in terms of where you wanted to go and where you are now in terms of public service. Yeah, I I first got interested in public service when I went away from my hometown of San Antonio and uh, I could see my home community um, for the first time with a fresh set of eyes. My brother and I went away to college Uh, at Stanford. And over there, I saw a community that seemed to have higher income levels, higher education levels, uh, seemed to be more innovative and ready for the future. And I also didn't see that many folks who had come from the community that I had come from, from the neighborhoods in San Antonio or even the city in general. And that was the beginning of me thinking that Uh, I wanted to dedicate some of my time and effort to making sure that other folks could have the same opportunity that I did. And a lot of that was related uh, to the neighborhood that Joaquin, Mm -hmm. my brother Joaquin and I had grown up in on the west side of San Antonio. It was low income to lower middle income. We went to the public schools. And I could see at that time, um, you know, even as a a 19 or 20-year-old, how much of a difference it makes, what kind of opportunity you get based on what neighborhood you live in, the housing that you have, the access that you have to different um, educational institutions, different amenities in life. So, uh, you know, it's been the part of the spark for my decision to go into public service in the first place. So when you think about that as a young man and knowing that and having that realization, you know, sort of a light bulb goes off at some point very early in your life, and then you come back and you're running uh, for council, and then you run for mayor. When you're thinking about those trajectories, how did that influence of just understanding the neighborhood 
in its environment? How did that affect you when you ran and, and you governed in these different state, local, and federal positions? I think it always grounded me. Um, first of all, I, when I moved back home after law school to San Antonio, I didn't move too far away from where I had grown up. And so I was still interacting with a lot of the same people. Um, I still seen every day the challenges of the folks uh, in terms of housing, in terms of economic development, in terms of educational opportunity. So I think it mattered that I'd lived the experience of growing up in those neighborhoods that, that were some of the most distressed in the city, and then that I returned to that area. And I've really tried to make my time in public service about creating opportunity for people, uh, focusing on opportunity. When I was on the council, that meant making sure that we could make good infrastructure investments. That's a lot of what council members do. They focus mm -hmm. on streets and sidewalks and sort of the basic services out there. As mayor, it meant pushing the envelope in terms of San Antonio's investment in educational opportunity. Uh, we passed something called Pre-K for SA, which was a, a ballot initiative to raise the sales tax by an eighth of a cent to significantly expand high-quality full-day pre-K. Mm -hmm. The voters passed that in uh, 2012. And the young children, four-year-olds, who are able to take advantage of that are largely from families that are lower income and um, often don't have the opportunity to get a great educational start in life. And then at HUD, it influenced how I saw that job. I wanted the folks who lived in public housing and, and HUD-assisted housing to be like the sun that opportunity services would orbit around. So whether it were improving the schools or better health care or access to transit, uh, I wanted to make sure that we could create an, an envelope there where they had more opportunity for good jobs and quality of life around them. One of the things, as you're talking, I'm thinking about a lot of these decisions and a lot of these environments are outcomes of policy. So when you think about President Johnson and the 50th anniversary of many of his pieces of legislation, housing was really an important piece of a policy framework trying to get at this very issue. When I think about this in your short life, in your short career, how do you see that federal initiative in terms of the Fair Housing Act really influencing the kinds of decisions you made and the kind of circumstances that you saw? Oh, it's been essential to the ability of cities to prosper more and especially vulnerable communities. It's been essential, the Fair Housing Act, uh, for uh, people of color or other folks from vulnerable communities to be able to move into higher opportunity areas over time. Yeah, it's clear that we still have a ways to go, um, but it's also clear that we've made a tremendous amount of progress since Lyndon Johnson signed the Fair Housing what Act 50 years ago. What do you see as some of the most important, if you had to name the one or two top things that you are so, you feel are really the most important things that this act did? Number one, you see uh, more integration in a lot of neighborhoods, especially a lot of higher opportunity neighborhoods than we used to see. And that's because this Fair Housing Act was instrumental in helping to root out uh, outright discrimination. Now, you know, it has to be pointed out, we're not all the way there. That yeah. still does happen. And we have Fair Housing Act enforcement right now under the law. But 1968 versus 2018 is night and day. So the number one thing, the number one accomplishment of this Fair Housing Act and the legacy of Lyndon Johnson is that it opened up 
the opportunity for people of color and other folks from protected classes to get into neighborhoods that they wanted to get into where they had better schools, they had more access to transit, they had better job opportunities. And that's been tremendous for families across the United States. Well, one of the things you did when you were Secretary of HUD in 2015, you rolled out some new rules that strictly, more strictly combat racial uh, segregation in residential neighborhoods. Talk to us a little bit about what motivated you in that in terms of the regulatory structure and, and determining how best that worked for you, and did it really meet the objectives uh, that you set out for them to meet? I believe in equal housing opportunity. I very much am a fan of the Fair Housing Act and the work of Lyndon Johnson and all of the advocates who helped make that possible. You know, that was signed only a week after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, and he and folks in the movement had pushed for fair housing legislation in 1966, 67, and then Lyndon Johnson signed it on April 11th of 68. In 2015, we accomplished something called affirmatively furthering fair housing. The act says that the secretary of HUD has the obligation to affirmatively further fair housing, but nobody had actually put that into a rule. It hadn't been given real meaning. So it was almost meaning. a statement of aspiration That's in right. some ways, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's kind of a, sounds like a bureaucratic yeah. phrase, right? Yeah, it's right. Not, not the warmest of phrases, but basically our rule said to communities that receive HUD money, federal taxpayer money, that you have to become more serious about ensuring equal housing opportunity in your community. Uh, when you invest your, res your federal resources, uh, when you do uh, your development code, all of those things that go into creating equal housing opportunity. It had been tried uh, about 20 years earlier in the Clinton administration, and they almost got it over the finish line. We were proud to get it over the finish line. And what it required uh, communities to do, local communities, is to put together robust plans, meaningful plans, on how in the years to come they're going to actually create more equal housing opportunity. I believe also that over time it's going to have the effect of further desegregating our country, uh, and that that's a positive thing. Uh, right now, of course, in Washington, there's a, a bit of a different direction that the current administration is going in. But I do think that the genie is out of the bottle mm -hmm. and that we're going to continue to get better and better because of this rule of fervently furthering fair housing that we uh, promulgated. There's one thing I've always been very curious about. You started as a councilman, so very, very close to your constituents. Then there's a mayor. You're still close. Not as close as if you're a councilman. Then you go to the national level. How does one in your position stay in touch with the very people at the highest level of creating policy? How do we keep in touch with those people that we think that we're really serving? That's a great question. Uh, I enjoyed working at the local level uh, in part because you are so close to the people that you mm -hmm. represent. Uh, and you can see the uh, the impact of your work very directly in the community that you drive around in, that you go and spend time with your family in, the neighbors that you talk to. It's different at the national level. You're not as close to the people. The way that I tried to bridge that gap was to make sure when I traveled uh, for HUD business, whether it was about uh, the Fair Housing Act or public housing or vouchers or whatever it was, to actually meet with the people who were impacted by our work. 
the folks who lived in public housing or who had housing choice vouchers or veterans or others who were experiencing homelessness so that I could hear firsthand how they thought that the program was working, you know, ways that we could improve it, uh, all of those things that, that you can only learn uh, from the firsthand people mm -hmm. that are actually dealing with the policy that is set. You know, that's how I tried to keep in touch with real people and to stay grounded. Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very hard. And I think it has to be something that is an intentional goal uh, when we're doing that. Because the farther away we get from the actual constituencies, the more removed we are from real life situations. That's something at the LBJ school we're trying to instill in our students that as they go out, they really have to stay in touch with the very people that they think they're serving. Because you came into the federal sector at a very high level in a an area called housing, yet you were part of a presidential cabinet. So when you think about the cabinet and the discussions of policy at that level, and this again is that, you know, it's an Obama administration, it's not every administration. So how did that reflect on your ability to work with others? Because you talked at the very beginning of this about how important education is, how important transportation is. How can we continue to make sure that people at the very highest levels who are very busy talk to each other and collaborate around these larger areas? And how did you do that as secretary? Well, fortunately, I came into the administration in 2014 when President Obama had set a strong blueprint of cabinet agencies, these departments working across silos. They started off with a really neat uh, initiative called Sustainable Communities in 2010 that was a partnership with HUD, the EPA, and the Department of Transportation to invest in both planning and, and actual implementation of policy that connected all of those things together, housing, transportation, and a better environment, uh, and then championed things like promise zones and choice neighborhoods at HUD that similarly looked across those silos of how we can put policy together to improve overall quality of life and economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. So the answer is that by the time that I got there, all of these cabinet secretaries were already kind of working together in this mode because of President Obama's leadership. And so when we worked on things like promise zones or we worked on choice neighborhoods or uh, Secretary Fox at the Department of Transportation was working on Tiger Grants, we would communicate and share ideas and think through how we could work more closely together. My hope also is that the example that that set and the cities that started to do that uh, to an even greater extent because of the leadership that uh, the federal government showed, my hope is that that will continue in those local communities and that the federal government also will continue to do that in the years to come. I think some people forget that the seating is just not the the secretary levels getting together and talk, but there's a whole ecosystem with them as well as an infrastructure within their departments that they start getting this ideas and they start working on this. So regardless, you seeded a, an idea and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that kind of initiative at the very high level is almost like a bully pulpit kind of an initiative that says this is important to us and we can do that. Yeah, and you know maybe the best example of that cross-agency work mm -hmm. was uh, the Obama administration's push to end veteran homelessness. It started in 2010 with a blueprint called Opening Doors, and the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness coordinated the work of 19 different federal agencies, including HUD, Department of Education, Transportation, all of them, 19 different federal agencies. And because of that coordination and very good coordination 
on the ground in many American cities, we were able to see a reduction of veteran homelessness by 47% between 2010 and 2016. That's how Washington should work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Congress did its part. They made the investment in resources that they rightfully should for veterans who are homeless. And because of that, you have thousands and thousands of veterans out there who now have a home and who are living healthier, more productive lives. This is why I love these kinds of podcasts and and talking to people, because people don't often, they may hear about it, but they don't really listen to some of the things that are done and how good policy can really seed good outcomes for the citizens. I want to shift a little bit. I'm thinking of the future. When you think about cities and you think about how people live and how they commute and how they go to work, you know, you've got artificial intelligence, you have IT, you have gentrification. There's a lot that's going on in terms of how you think in the next 50 years, because this is the 50th anniversary, fair housing. When you think about the next 50 years, talk to us a little bit about what you think are some of the big challenges with these social and economic shifts that are going on. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, what we see happening in the urban cores of communities across the United States is that rents are going up tremendously. We have a rental affordability crisis in this country. We need to increase supply. Uh, We need to increase housing opportunity in general and invest more in it. One of the big challenges that I see in the years to come is this growing inequality and part of the way that that expresses itself in cities, places like here in Austin, is a lot of displacement and gentrification. And I will say that I haven't seen one single city that I would grade with an A toward handling that challenge. Wow. And it's understandable a lot of times why, you know, because there's this cycle that happens where uh, you have a distressed neighborhood and then, you know, folks that, that may be middle income or a little bit more than that start moving in and they start improving the homes. Mm-hmm. And, but it's still mostly a distressed neighborhood. And then more investment is made and more, more folks start moving in. And it's been the aspiration of the folks who live there to see more infrastructure investment and see more amenities. But they're also yeah. getting priced That's out as the, right. or they're cashing out in some way. Sometimes yes. they sell their home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before you know it, you're in this situation as a city where it's almost too late. East Austin is a good example yes. of that. I, I'm not saying that it is too late there, but but it's a good example of what happens to many communities across the United States. So that's one challenge. Uh, another challenge will be for uh, rural and small town America to better link these things up. I remember visiting uh, small town Wisconsin with uh, Representative Sean Duffy when I was uh, there at HUD. And one of the things I heard over and over was that they needed better access to transit because the jobs were too far Mm -hmm, away. mm -hmm. Uh, And for rural and small town America, we need to figure out ways to do what we've done a lot of in cities, which is to connect the dots of these different quality of life uh, components Mm -hmm. and amenities. I think we still hear there, too. Uh, I know the students did a, a study on food insecurity and talked sure. to people about that. And th- the students had all these grandiose ideas. Let's have victory gardens and let's get better grocery stores. And when they talked to the people, it was like, get me transportation to a job. Yeah. You know, so it was like this: these two infrastructure, you know, your housing and your ability to move out of that area to get other opportunities is really important. I see those two as almost tied at the hip. Um, absolutely. absolutely. Um, as we yeah. go on. So I have a a last question um, for you, and that is, okay, we have students here, and you've been exposed to these students uh, for the last, uh, you know, semester and a half, and you know they're very passionate uh, about what they want to do and and make a difference in the world. When you think about 
how to talk to them about staying involved, not being cynical, moving into things? What kind of advice would you give to them? Maybe it's not advice. Maybe just here's my story. I'm going to share my story with you. Yeah. What well, would you no, say? and I have advice. Yeah. You know, and tonight I, I actually have my last uh, lecture this semester, and I'm going to share some of that perspective with them. Uh, first of all, I, I start off by telling them that they make me feel old. <laughs> I'm <laughs> only 43, but they Wait make a me minute. feel old. Hold on a minute. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, the advice that I give folks is, number one, it's true what people say, that you should find things that you're passionate about. Because uh, if you're going to spend your career doing it, it needs to be something that you can get up in the morning and want to excel at mm -hmm. because you love it. Um, and then secondly, I ask them to always believe in themselves and surround themselves with people who believe in them. Uh, and then third, uh, I tell them really that uh, they should do everything possible that they can um, to find a way to connect these dots. Maybe it's not what we've been talking about necessarily with certain distinct types of policy, but to think through from the perspective of the people that they're trying to serve, not mm -hmm. from their perspective, right. either sitting behind a desk or as an elected official, uh, you know, getting all the plaudits, but from the perspective of the people that they're trying to serve, how does it all work together in policymaking? And if they always keep the perspective of the folks they're supposed to serve uh, at the forefront, then I don't think that you can go wrong, uh, ultimately. And I don't think we can go wrong ending there. That's a perfect ending in terms of what we need to be talking, not only to our students, but to the rest of us who are citizens of the United States. So thank you so much, Julian. I really lot, appreciate Angel. taking your time to do this. Thank you. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.